Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. At BMO's recent Global Reserve and Asset Managers Conference, my co-host Jonathan Hackett moderated a panel on risk versus impact within the sustainable finance umbrella. Jonathan was joined by Catherine Forrest, Vice President for Capital Ground, and Dan Novak, Senior Portfolio Manager and ESG Initiatives for Bank of Canada. Let's listen to what these experts had to say. Really, our goal is to talk about the distinction between impact and risk as we think about ESG the different goals that people have when it comes to ESG integration and sustainable finance products to really understand from the perspective of both investors and, you know, an issuer, you know, involved in the Bank of Canada's program uh, and the recent federal green bond, you know, the trade-off that we see. So I'll, I'll start by asking Catherine and then Dan to just give an introduction of yourself and then particularly how your role incorporates uh, ESG and sustainable finance. Catherine. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me here. Uh, It's great to see you all in person. Uh, What a fantastic event and uh, what an inspiring session we just listened to. So we'll try to step up uh, and, uh, you know, move to par with that. But, uh, uh, you know, just uh, don't hold us to it. In my role, uh, I act as a bridge uh, at Capital Group between our equity investment team, which is about 250 investment professionals located across the globe uh, and our Canadian clients. So my perspective to ESG, and it is ESG integration, is with regard to corporates, uh, although as a firm, uh, we also look at ESG integration with regard to sovereigns. Uh, If I take a step back and think about ESG integration for equity investment process, I think what's important there to note is uh, how, do, how do we think about investing? Because it is integration. It's not an add-on piece. It's not something separate. So as equity investors, we think about companies fundamentally bottom-up with the long-term investment time horizon. That's the starting point. That's all you need to know. Uh, how does ESG integration fit into that? Well, if we have the long-term investment time horizon, we need to understand how the environment around us and the companies that we invest in is, are, is changing. Uh, and ESG issues, uh, technological advancement, customer preference changes, climate change, uh, all those issues have, in our view, material impact on the companies that we invest in with the long-term investment time horizon. So we look at ESG integration as part of our fiduciary duty. Okay. Yeah. Um- so I'm, uh, my main job is uh, is on the is a portfolio manager for the for the foreign reserves, and I guess my, my introduction to, to ESG is probably about 2016. It, it came in a very uh, very narrow file where you know the, the 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 suggestion from from the manager was that you know we, we have some of these labeled bonds on the books and just kind of have a look at it. You know, do, do they trade a little different? What's the liquidity like? Do they What's the performance like? And quite a quite a narrow focus to to, to begin with, you know, just the assessment of uh, of, of a few different uh, parts of the portfolio, um, you know, and then and then the the, the market, but then the file, um, and then the focus, you know, just has grown and grown and grown. 
uh, you know, to the point where, uh, you know, the Bank of Canada is part of part of the NGFS, uh, you know, we're part of, uh, you know, the, the G20 Sustainable Finance Working Group. Um, you know, these, these issues come up at, uh, at, the, at the G7. You know, there, there's, you know, the, the, and, and, and really bank-wide, uh, you know, the, the bank has, um, you know, the bank has a, has a, climate, uh, a climate change, you know, initiative, and it touches all areas of the bank. You know, uh, you know the, the markets department, which we look at, but also you know the research, uh, the research department. Um, uh, you know, we, we'd uh, you know in conjunction with OSFI, we'd done a pilot project to assess transition risks in uh, in in Canadian financial institutions. Um, you know, all down to questions of sort of you know uh, corporate travel and, and and premises and things like this. So it really touches all areas of the bank, and it's kind of grown and grown and grown. So uh, you know, so. Uh, and, and now we have a lot of people, a lot of people at the bank looking at this in, in, in all the various departments. So uh, that's kind of how I got into it, and kind of the way I, the way I look at it now. Um, okay. And, and Catherine, maybe just you know, talk about ESG integration. Um, I, I I feel like that ranges in people's perspectives from, hey, I get a score from MSCI, and you know, if it's bad, I just don't invest all, all the way through to. I, you know, tear apart the part things and I'm using satellite data around, you know, methane emissions around facilities versus disclosures in order to get an edge. You know, what's your approach to ESG integration? How does it really work in practice? Yeah, th thank you for that. And you're hitting a very important point. It's, it's not uniform. Uh, you know, I, I can define, if I were to define ESG integration, I would say it's the uh, explicit uh, inclusion and systematic inclusion of material environmental, social, and governance considerations into uh, the investment process uh, and decision-making. Um, what you said is absolutely right. Uh, there is no one way to implement ESG. I think the definition, we, we can probably agree to it. Uh, but if we think about it in terms of into investment analysis and decision, just poke on that, we all invest with different objectives, with different time horizons, with different processes, different ways to add alpha. Uh, if that is the starting point, then absolutely the way we integrate ESG into our process is probably going to be different as well. So I think that's, that's maybe a helpful starting point. Um, one quick number, though, and I think it encompasses all those various approaches that you were touching on. Uh, last time I checked, which I think is data from 2020, uh, investment strategies that follow ESG integration uh, amounted to something uh, around $25 trillion US. So it's, it's a big number. Uh, it's not uniform, so let's not get too excited about it, but I think there's, there's tremendous potential there to, to harness into, into something useful. Um, how do we integrate uh, ESG? Uh, just to actually get to your question. Um, let me pull out two pieces again from that definition. The first one is material. Uh, material ESG factors. Um, what that means for us is that we're not imposing a constraint. We're not putting on a secondary investment objective. This goes right to the core of the primary investment objective itself. Uh, the second part into investment analysis and decision, it needs to be owned by everybody. The entire investment team owns ESG integration. This is not an add-on and after-the-fact consideration. Everybody owns it. It applies across the entire platform. And it goes right back to what I said before. It's not something where we think, you know, we're, we're going to do something useful and good here. This is part of our fiduciary duty. 
it belongs to everybody into everything. Uh, how do we do it? Uh, there are within our process three main pillars. All of them are led or lean heavily on our investment team. None of these pieces uh, are add-ons by some sort of top-down function. You know, in a way, it's, it's how we organize ourselves. There are different ways to organize it. It's part of how we invest. It's part of how we operate as a company. The first component to is this uh, ESG frameworks, uh, and they apply at an industry level. Our investment team identified 32 different industries, and then for each industry, they defined the E, S, and G considerations that tend to be most material in those specific industries. Um, and those frameworks, they don't live on a you know, spreadsheet somewhere or filed away in a cabinet. They live directly in, in our investment research system and they're populated with real life data uh, on an ongoing basis. So I think that's important. And the, um, the, the second piece to that is that the consideration here is not just to highlight risk to the investment team. This is meant to find the best companies within those industries. So it's, it's two, two ways to look at it, and we certainly do look at it from both perspectives. Uh, there's a second part to the process where we pull in external data really to, uh, to get a reality check. So we have our way to think about the world, to think about companies. How does the industry think about these companies? Uh, and if, uh, if there's material deviation, we do do the extra work and there's a formal governance process around it. Uh, and then the third pillar is uh, uh, proxy voting and engagement. Uh, I'm not going to go into details here, but I think what's important is that Two pieces, uh, I alluded to the first one, you need to enable the investment team to actually implement this. Uh, you can't just say, go off and do it. Uh, so if you give them systems, data, tools, I, I think you're much more likely to be successful. Uh, the second uh, consideration that I think is important for us is that we do think that ESG is dynamic. Uh, ESG considerations change, technology changes, resource constraints change, um, human capital considerations change, customer preferences change. As the environment changes, we need to make sure that we update our frameworks accordingly and keep our process dynamic through time. So I, I hope that gets to your question. Um, and yeah. I'll pass it so, over to you. No, it so, doesn't. Dan, like, so, I think... So, so oh, Catherine, in, in many ways, I, I envy um, the level of engagement that, that you're able to have uh, you know, with, with, with some of these names and so on when it gets to, to proxy, but it's going to make, you know, what I'm going to describe about, about uh, reserves management to, to sound very, very boring, um, which, which by comparison it is. So, so we also have three pillars. I'm giving you the, kind of the quick and dirty on how the foreign reserves works, of which uh, capital preservation, liquidity, um, and return are the main pillars, and return is kind of the, the junior pillar out of that. Um, you know, and this is, and this is where I'm, I'm, I, I do meet you know, with some, uh, and we invest in sort of uh, SSAs and, and, you know, very high rated sovereigns and, and the agencies and, and, and such, you know, um, you know many, many, of, uh, many of which have been here uh, over the past few days. Um, you know, so I, I, I do get met with some skepticism when, when we hear, well, okay, we've got, uh, I mean, it's one thing when we talk about, like, you know, there are certain, uh, certain organizations, certain uh, multilateral development banks that only issue sustainable and, you know, we definitely like those names and so when we add those, we'll, we will be adding sustainable paper. That's fine. Um, you know, but but uh, then we're met with, you know, questions where we have, uh, we, ha we have an issuer where they, they issue both uh, some kind of labeled thematic bond but also uh, 
but also a conventional bond and, and try and talk about, well, what's the advantage of buying, you know, a, a French green over, over a French conventional? Um, you know, and, and, and it's quite a good question, um, you know, because in one sense we talk about, we talk about risk. Um, we'll say, well, you know, the, 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 the French, the French sovereign is the French sovereign. It's not, you're not getting any, <laughs> you're not, you're, you're, you're not getting any different risk profile by buying, by buying a French green than you would by getting a French, uh, conventional. I'm sorry, I'm not picking on France specifically here. I could be talking about, <laughs> I could be talking about any issuer. Um, you know, so, so from a risk perspective, you're going, well, these are, they're, they're, they're the same. Um, you know, and from an impact perspective, uh, you know, you're saying, well, the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the French, the French state will do, you know, what it intends to do. Um, you know, it's, uh, unless, unless there was all, you know, the, the, the fungibility of, of money is such that, you know, that, that there would have to be like, you know, the majority of the funding to be in green in order to push policy in a particular direction. So, you know, in other words, the, the, the government is going to do what it wants to do. So from an impact perspective, your, your effect is, uh, you know, can be seen as being, um, can be seen as being limited as well. Um, you know, as it happens, you know, as we manage the foreign reserves, you know, we're much more concerned about, um, we don't, we don't worry that much about, uh, about a basis point or so on, you know, of, uh, with, where, where it trades relative to the rest of the curve and the greenium. We are we're often more concerned about, uh, the tenor and where it comes and so on. So that's, that's why we end up with a lot of, um, of labeled bonds on our, on our portfolio. Uh, you know, but it, but it does, it does raise that question. Um, so then we get to the the Canada green, um, and we, we I've, I've been asked this question um, um, sometimes politely, sometimes a little more rudely, and, and saying <laughs> what the what the purpose is of the Canada green. Did, did Canada need to issue a green bond in order to have uh, you know the kinds of expenditures that we anticipate in there with clean technology and and uh, um, clean power generation, electric vehicles, this sort of thing? Those that'll likely form the bulk of the expenditure. Did Canada need to issue a green here? Um, and the answer is, um, you know, in, in an absolute sense, no. Um, it would be entirely possible to issue a conventional bond and to fund these expenditures via a conventional bond. Then why do it? Um, you know, the answer is not the, the, the slight greenium. Um, the answer, the answer is we wanted to bring some, uh, we wanted to bring some attention, um, to Canada's story, um, and the fact that we were, uh, the fact that these, these are part of the government's, uh, plans. Um, you know, to fund these kinds of expenditures. We also, uh, we also wanted to serve as, uh, a, a large Canadian, uh, benchmark size issue in the, uh, in the Canadian green market, which kind of, uh, can then be compared to other, other issuers in Canada. So it has that effect. It also has the, um, it also has the, the auxiliary effect of kind of focusing policy. Um, and this is the, uh, this is the only time I've ever actually done this. I've been, Public sector for a little over seven years. The first time I've ever, um, you know, worked on a, a, a government project that actually started with something new and brought it to completion. Everything I've worked on before has been uh, amendments or changes to existing programs, and, and so it had the effect of kind of you know focusing policy because you had to you had to talk with all sorts of the various government departments and kind of get a stock take of what their green expenditures uh, were going to be. So, you know, absolute terms was it was it necessary? You know. Maybe not, um, but it did have you know all these all these benefits of of, uh, of of issuing in that way, and so that you know so so I can I can see that certainly true for us. I imagine it's, it's very true for for many other issuers. Um, you know, so there was there was a real uh, there was a real positive impact um, to the issue, and and and, um, and I believe that's going to continue. And can I probe on something? Because Catherine talked about how their frameworks are dynamic, and obviously. 
you know, a, a green bond framework is a market-facing document. Mm -hmm. it, it, it isn't just something you can edit without anyone noticing. But do you think similarly that the Canadian definition of green is going to be dynamic in that regard? Yeah. Um, you know, so, so the short answer is yes. Um, you know, you know the, the, the framework that we've had, um, you know, you know, it will it will change over time. Um, and, you know, it's difficult to say what uh, you know, when you immediately release a framework. You know, this is this is going to change because, uh, you know, <laughs> otherwise why didn't you write it differently to begin with? But, um, but I think there's an understanding that you know over time, at the very at the very least, um, the the technologies that we use, um, you know, to address this, you know, if we want to call it a you know a, a new technological revolution in green. You know, the technologies themselves will develop. They will, they will evolve. They will change. Um, but, but also on top of that, I think there's an idea of what's accepted by, uh, accepted by markets. Um, and, and, and in that sense, what, what I really mean is accepted by broader society as, as being green. Um, and, and I know I just, I just want to address this one because it's come up. Um, and, that's, <laughs> and, and that's the role of, 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 of nuclear um, in, in, the, in the transition. And... Uh, you know, nuclear was was not part of uh, not part of the green bond framework. Um, you know, which which uh, you know many market participants took some note of. Uh, you know, but but we're we're very clear at the the, the I mean, the government has been very clear about this that we see nuclear as part of Canada's overall transition to net zero, even if it's not part of the green bond. Um, why was it not part of the green bond? It 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 wasn't so much you know because we had a view specifically about nuclear as. As I said, that was you know part of the government's view, um, but because of the market standard, and there are investors out there that explicitly exclude uh, nuclear from their frameworks, and if that's going to be part of your framework, well then then they're going to exclude it from uh, from their investment list, uh, and and we didn't and we didn't want that. So you know that's one I'm not you know I'm not you know prognosticating of, of, of our view about that particular industry, but you know this is this is one area where. The, the acceptance of the markets, the approach of markets, and the, the 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 approach of society, I guess, you know, in a broader sense, you know, could change over time. Now, are we going to be changing the framework, you know, every few months, updating it? No, of course not. That was going to that that would be confusing. Um, but um, but I think there's an idea that you know when 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 standards and and market best practices, you know, have shifted materially, um, you know, that that the the Canadian green bond framework will will reflect that. So I, I'm going to digress this just for a minute because for, for those that don't know me, nuclear is definitely a passion topic for me. Um, would you say that having precedents like the Bruce Power Nuclear Green Bond makes inclusion in a future framework easier? Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 believe, I believe that the, the Bruce Power Bond was, uh, was a very important step. Um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, they could issue with the green label, that it was accepted by the market. Uh, you know, and that uh, you know, and the market participants felt that that was, uh, uh, you know, felt that it was green and could be included. I, think, I thought that was a, a very important issue, um, and we we're very happy to see that succeed. Um, you know, other other important you know steps I think will be as other sovereigns, uh, or, or or potentially agencies, depending on the structure. Um, you know, begin to in, begin to include, it, and then that begins to see some acceptance. We're seeing attitudes change a little bit in Europe with with the taxonomy here, um, and and so so I think there's a couple of steps here. The Bruce Power one was very important. Um, you know, I think there'll be a couple others. Fair. And, and Catherine, like going back to the equity side, we've talked a lot about the technologies that will be there in the future and, and the opportunity I think for 
people to be rewarded for solving problems like the energy transition. How do thematic topics like that fit into your approach of ESG integration and the, you know, things that will cut across different sectors like the energy transition? How do you approach that? Short answer is fundamental, bottom-up, long-term <laughs> time horizon. Uh, it, it's a great question, though, uh, because um, we think about it as a multi-dimensional problem. It's something that, you know, it's not just the energy industry. It's, it's really a cross-industry issue. It's a global issue or a multilateral issue. So we need to think about that uh, and the environment around it when we look at companies that we look to invest in. Uh, and again, I, I, I would uh, want to highlight that it goes back to, to both the risk and the opportunity. Uh, there, you know, there's a risk of stranded assets, obviously. Uh, there's a risk for new market opportunities uh, and uh, you know, new areas of growth for companies. Uh, and you know, just to, to touch on some of the obvious, but um, I want to caveat by saying up front that you know, this is a long-term journey for all of us. Uh, we don't have all the answers. I think we're reasonably clear on where we want to go. Uh, but the path is not completely clear. Uh, Dan talked earlier about, you know, a bump in the road, uh, and there will be other bumps in the road. Um, and uh, I, I think we need to be open-minded and reflect that uh, and grab those opportunities uh, and understand the risks as they, as they come along. So some of the more obvious ones uh, that we see today, I mean, obviously within oil and gas, it's uh, LNG uh, and, and how that uh, is uh, increasingly seen as an opportunity to, uh, to support the transition, uh, in particular over the past three months. Uh, you know, it, it was always there, but I think just the urgency is, is completely different. So then uh, how do we look at companies? It's, uh, you know, the, the mix of their, uh, their oil and gas assets, uh, gas versus oil, uh, the capex required, uh, scope one and two emissions, all of that we need to think about. Uh, so again, looking across all standard financial analysis, including ES and G considerations. And that includes workforce engage engagement and all of those other issues that you know, we don't really touch on in this panel today. Uh, but it, I just want to highlight it's not one-dimensional. Within materials, uh, we, need to, uh, we need to understand electrification, what that means for copper, what it means for potential substitute materials like aluminum. Uh, it's not maybe the obvious target, but if we need more copper for certain uses, what does that mean for the um, uh, uh, metals uh, as well? Uh, within industrials, uh, you know, we talked about nuclear briefly, uh, but just broader applications into HVAC, uh, building, heating, and cooling technology. Um, industrial gas producers uh, and the opportunities uh, that are opening up for, for those types of companies. Uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the crossover into utilities uh, and what that means for uh, industrials and the, uh, the upgrade of uh, electricity grids. So, so there are tons of opportunities. These are the obvious ones, the ones we know today. Uh, but if we have this conversation in five years from now, I suspect we will see other opportunities uh, that we will talk about at that point in time. So a key point, again, it's a it's a multidimensional problem. Uh, we think about it in a multidimensional way, and we want to reflect how the environment is changing around it. Uh, and some of the more recent examples are, um, you know, we have tight labor markets. Um, how do companies engage their workforces? We need to think about that uh, when we invest for the long term in these types of companies because they do rely on skilled labor. Um, how about water stress? Uh, we need to think about that. Uh, and then, of course, how about security uh, and, and energy security in particular? We need to think about that. So it's a, it's a broad 
complex issue. Uh, we can't solve it all today. We need to build a framework that is flexible through time to make sure that we can reach the destination. I think the way Dan put it, there's a, a trade-off between speed and doing it the right way. I, I think that was his main point, and I think that's, uh, that's how we think about it as well. Can, can I probe on, on just one part? Because you mentioned, you know, change your perspectives on LNG in the last three months, and you touched on energy security. You know, you, you have what I might describe as a distributed model, where this is everyone should think about this and should be incorporating ESG. But there are some topics like energy security that feel very fast-moving, changing perspectives, changes in opportunities. How do you align against, you know, rather than a thousand flowers blooming, a perspective on how some of these large trends that are rapidly evolving are going to impact still ESG factors within investment strategies? I mean, the, uh, the first point is um, uh, just in terms of looking at investment process, collaboration. Uh, you're not going to solve that, you know, in, in one office with a three-person team, uh, likely. So you need to bring in different perspectives. Um, and uh, we spend a lot of time on, on doing that uh, because none of us understands the world uh, in its complexity uh, on our own. Uh, and uh, the, the other thing we do, uh, and I, I, it doesn't answer your question directly, but I, I think it's an important feature as well. We don't drive for a consensus, top-down standard view. Our investors can invest wherever they feel they can find long-term value. So in a world that is changing rapidly uh, with a lot of uncertainty around it, we're not going to say we're going to put all our chips on LNG. That's, that's not how we operate as a firm. Uh, but you can see how that discourse and debate and discussion within the group is guiding individuals towards certain emerging segments of industries. Uh, and LNG would be one of those. Perfect. So I, I'm going to flag for the audience. You know, would love to have questions coming up. I'm going to ask e each of you about your perspective on where ESG is going. But very much, please, you know, whether it be in the app or if you just throw up your hand afterwards, we'd love to have your questions as well. Um, maybe Dan, starting with you. You know, ESG ratings. You know, you know, green. I, I've recently been asked. You know, are green bonds going to exist in ten years, or is everything going to be green? Yeah, okay. You know, where where do you see things? All right, I'm I'm going to make a I'm going to make a, a projection here. It's a, it's a projection. It's not a promise. Um, that in in ten years we will no longer be talking about uh, labeled bonds, green bonds, social bonds, or 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 even or sustainability linked. Uh, you know, these, these will no longer be issued. The, the, the existing ones will still run and so on, but but uh, we're no longer going to be issuing uh, issuing that. And uh, b before I get called out for being crazy about, you know, issuing bonds and then telling me they're not going to exist in 10 years, I think this is a, a absolutely a, a necessary uh, part of the development of this market at this time. It's a necessary step, uh, you know, before we get to, uh, before, before, before we move on. And I think that's, so, 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 so there, it does serve a purpose to have label bonds and sustainability linked um, at current. Um, but I think eventually what we're going to get to, um, 10 years, I have, it's a round number, um, is a kind of uh, integrated ESG of, at the, at the level of the issuer, at the level of the entity. Um, and, and I know, I know Catherine's looking at me going, look, well, well, on the equity side, we're already there. Um, <laughs> we're, we're getting there, right? Like that's what, that's what we do every day. Right. Um, and, and, but, but, but definitely on the, uh, 
on, on the fixed income side at the issuer level, certainly when it comes to sovereigns and so on. Um, we're definitely not. Um, you know, you take a chart of take a take a take a chart of where where uh, different credit rating agencies have the credit on uh, on a particular name and, and just and just plot those over each other, and the correlation is very very high. Um, you know, the, the difference between two, uh, difference between rating agencies when it comes to a particular name, you know, one notch, maybe two, but it's it's not going to be, and then they have slightly different methodologies, but it's not going to be overall that different because you're asking, you know, really a very simple question, am I going to get my money back? Um, plot the, the correlation, or sorry, the, yeah, the, just a map of where where the the ESG ratings are from the, from some of the major ratings agencies, MSCI and Sustainalytics and so on, uh, you know, to the to the issuers, um, and they really are all over the cor- all over the place. The correlation on there is you know like very close to zero, um, you know, because they're asking not just because they have different methodologies, but they're also asking asking different questions, uh, you know. So so when I say it's going to be in ten years, I really have to stress the. Herculean nature of this task, you know, to be able to do this, uh, to be able to do this in a way that's kind of um, accepted. The way I see it, we can go kind of, you know, one of two ways. One would be, uh, you know, kind of the credit rating, kind of the credit rating agency, um, you know, approach where, uh, where the market converges around some methodologies and some standards that the market overall is very comfortable with. Um, you know, and then the, and then the and then the major uh, ESG ratings agencies will confer, con- converge around those methodologies with maybe some some slight differences. You know, not unlike credit rating agencies uh, do today. The the other the other possibility, and, and Catherine, I think you, you're you're going to help me out here because I'm I'm not really an equity <laughs> person, but is is sort of the way we often do uh, uh, equity analysis in the sense of you know we present a bunch of data and a bunch of facts about various kinds of equities. Um, you know, but there's no there's no standard methodology for determining well where where should an equity be in there? Where's the what, you know what's a buy, what's a sell? We, we present a bunch of a, a bunch of data, hopefully comparable and interoperable, so that that, that the equity analyst can um, you know can use this usefully. And then it's up to the analyst to say, well, this is what we think matters, or this is what suits um, these are the these are the ESG indicators that suit uh, you know our investment strategy and our objectives um, and so on. Um, you know, in which case, in which case, it'll be a question of, you know, presenting a, a lot of the ESG data and the indicators, you know, in a way that can be uh, understood legibly by by the market, um, but allowing allowing the individual players, um, you know, to decide for themselves what they feel is important and relevant um, for their objectives. So, you know, again, this is this is much medium to longer term. Uh, you know, but I, but I do think that you know, it, it, I, I do think it's starting with 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 the with the equity side more than the fixed income side. Um, I, I don't know if you, you agree with me on that, but, well, I, but, I to, but what do you think? I, I love how you put this, and it strikes me as incredibly circular um, because the way I see it, um, the way ESG ratings. Uh, started anyway. They, they tend to, at, at least in my mind, I'm not a credit person, so I might be speaking out of term here, but they, they kind of resemble how we think about credit risk, I, I think, right? We start with all the risk factors and then we figure out how those risks might be mitigated uh, and then we're left with some residual risk, which then drives the ESG score. It, it doesn't strike me as awfully different from maybe how we think about credit risk. Uh, and, and to me, that is actually one of the key areas that 
uh, is an opportunity for the industry to do much better. Uh, and, and this might be speaking uh, more for myself, I, you, know, as a, you know, as a professional in the industry, as opposed to you know, some corporation uh, that, that might be associated with my name here. I'd need to clear that with my colleagues. <laughs> but if I, if I think about where the industry is going, why are we highlighting so much the things that are wrong with the companies that we're investing in. You know, if we flip the reporting around and turn it to here are the things uh, uh, that have been impacted, here's the progress that's been made, and here are how these companies, in terms of their business line revenue, for example, support UN social uh, sustainable development goals uh, or something along those lines, right? Some common standard that actually helps us understand how various products, investment opportunities, uh, projects, whatever we're looking at, how do these align with the goals that we're trying to achieve? Uh, so, so really just changing the conversation, I think that would be, that'd be a really interesting way to, to think about uh, ESG integration and sustainable investing. Um, and uh, you know, I, I can leave it at that and just open it up for maybe some, uh, some comments from you, Jonathan, or, or yeah, questions. Yeah, I'll start by saying, Dan, I, I I, I don't know if I should be worried that your belief is that most of my team will be out of a job in 10 years or, you know, <laughs> but, but I actually, you know. The job it, changes a little bit. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Fair. But, but Catherine, like, what's something you've just touched on that I find really interesting? Because absolutely, when I'm explaining an ESG rating to a corporate, my answer is this is somebody's attempt to calibrate a PD rating without ever having done an actual regression, right? This is somebody creating a score that if when I built large corp default models would have been something that somebody tried to calibrate, but it would never actually have been a way we would think about an equity investment, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're not looking at a binary outcome on this and saying, okay, you know, Coca-Cola good because it's, it's not how you're doing ESG integration for them. And, and so maybe Dan, I'm gonna put you on the spot and ask, you know, the World Bank creates ESG ratings for sovereigns. You know, the, if we think about what an ESG rating is and this idea of like a, a PD, like, are you ever looking as an investor and saying, I should incorporate this information? There's risk not currently captured in credit ratings that is ESG risk. And, and you know, obviously you, you're still focused on, you know, a lot of these are not still likely to default. You're talking about edges, things at the margin, but are you thinking about that information when you make decisions? Yeah, I mean, at the sovereign level, you know, the, the risk, huh. Qu questions of, of, of sovereign risk as relates to, to climate, um, you know, it Well, it does I'll, I'll say governance is a risk. And yeah, you can gov say, is, governance, governance is, is, is a president for life structure, a good governance structure? You, you, is you, a, you know, you know my, my, my view on that is that the governance should governance was always a risk. <laughs> like, you know, that, that should have been incorporated. You know, if it, if it wasn't incorporated into sovereign sovereign risk, you know, before we started talking about ESG, then then you know the, then the the risk the, the risk department hasn't hadn't been doing the job correctly. So, um, you know, so I, I I absolutely think that 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 that's part of it. Now, as, as pertains to the 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 E and the S side, um, especially especially the 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 climate E, um, you know, there there is a question there about you know which countries are, are most exposed. Uh, Exposed to climate change, and then and then which countries are doing the most uh, to mitigate, right? Um, and there's an adaptation. You know, one of the, the, the one of the paradoxes of, of of the risk to climate change is that you look at you look at a map of of who's most who's most vulnerable, 
you know, and, and there's a little bit to do with geography, maybe 10%, but 90% of it correlates with wealth. Um, and so you, you end up in a weird situation where, you know, in mitigating your, uh, your climate, sovereign climate risk, you're rewarding countries who are already rich for being rich, which it doesn't seem right. Um, you know, but then, if you, but then if you go the other way and you say, well, okay, no, I, I want to reward countries that are, are, are taking uh, actions to mitigate climate, you know, like, okay, then, you know, you feel, you feel like you're rewarding the right thing, but you also run the risk of, uh, uh, of, of a little bit of, you know, if, if you're purely worried about fiduciary duty, you, you run the risk of a little bit of job confusion at that point and going like, well, are you, are you diverging from, from, from your mandate of fiduciary duty to a mandate of impact investing? Uh, you know, and if, and if, if, if you're, if, if your client, um, has mandated you with with impact. That's different, right? Because it's the client's money, and and they want you to generate income. Uh, sorry, impact. Um, but if but if it's purely a question of, of fiduciary, then you, you may run um, you know a, a little bit aside from that. Now, if those two, if policy, you know, either either regional or global policy were to co- converge on that by some sort of a, a like a I'm not advocating or for or against you know this, but it's been thrown about. But you know. Uh, you know, border-adjusted climate taxes and charges, I should say. Um, you know, but you know, the questions of the like kind of coordination that rewards both uh, the mitigation uh, uh, rewards at the mitigation level. Um, you know, then then the risk and then then the then the risk kind of converges there. So so that would be true. Um, but but right now right now there is kind of a split between there. So that's where we are. I'll follow up with one. Just you know, you, you've talked a bit about you know, the, the geographic differences and, you know, that, that that's where there could be stark implications. Have you bought any, you know, long duration bonds from countries with high flood risk recently? And was that actually a part of the discussion? Um, yeah, so, so one, of, one of the things about, uh, one of the things about the foreign reserves is that we do have a tenor limit of, of 10 and a half years. And so, <laughs> uh, so, so much of much of the really, really catastrophic effects of climate change um, are towards the back end of that. You know, where you, where you do really start worrying about uh, about rising sea levels and the damage that will cause. I mean, if I said if I said just a quick rule of thumb, there is to say uh, you want <laughs> overall. You, if you want to mitigate against that risk, you 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 prefer countries with a high with a high ratio of uh, area to coastline, I would say it's probably probably what you like, um, which is uh, you know, a funny way of saying you don't want islands, um, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, as much. Sorry, um, but um, you know, I, I, but 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 in the next ten years, we probably won't see a lot of that. And next ten years, uh, yeah, most of the models I, I, I've seen, I think, I've seen this one from the, the BMO Climate Institute as well. Uh, you know, more of the risk comes from kind of the the uh, exacerbation of catastrophic weather events. Uh, you know, so I'm thinking like you know, you're not so much rising sea levels, but floods or wildfires or you know things of, of this variety, which are you know a little more dispersed uh, and kind of difficult to 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 nail down where exactly they're going to happen. Okay, and, and Catherine, maybe to similarly put you on the spot, Dan mentioned this idea of like maybe you're just rewarding wealthy countries. You know, one of the arguments that I've seen against ESG integration is, oh, this is just a proxy for good management. You know, 
you're rewarding large, well-functioning companies that are disclosing the right information and penalizing companies that may just you know, not be able to respond to these same data requests. Do you, do you see a contradiction in the way we're getting our ESG data right now? I think it might be a fair point if you invest based on ratings. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to completely uh, you know, discount ratings. They do have a place. There's, there's good information in there. Uh, but you probably need to, to think beyond them. Um, if you integrate ESG considerations in your investment process on a forward-looking basis and you really think about the opportunity at the underlying company level, I, I think the argument goes away uh, a little bit. And, you know, I can think of uh, a couple of examples uh, within the mining industry in particular, uh, where we're, we are investors and the, uh, the, the public ESG ratings for those companies are horrendous. And, you know, you can, uh, you can flag a whole range of different issues. I mean, it's a laundry list, uh, anything from, you know, poor relationships with the local communities uh, to human rights abuses, uh, environmental damage. Like it's, it's a very long list of uh, very serious offenses. In many cases, those happened five, 10 years ago. So I need to take a step back and think about What's different now? Is there anything that's different now? Uh, what's the risk on a forward-looking basis? What's the opportunity on a forward-looking basis? How can we invest in this company with an understanding that uh, they're on a path to actually solving problems for us as opposed to extrapolating them? So I, I, I think it's, um, it's a fair point if, if you put too much emphasis on the historic data. Fair. Well. Dan, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.